0: Religion just may send you to hell. That may be striking since probably most people in the world, they just lump all religions together. And most have the same aim, basically. Be good and you'll end up living forever in some form or fashion. But what we're going to see this morning from Jesus is that is a dreadful mistake to make. He's going to go toe to toe with the most religious people of his day as we've seen, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you're new to us, this is what we do. We walk through books of the Bible, so it's a hard passage. This passage probably wouldn't choose to preach, but here it is before us. When we've been in Matthew since December of 2020, believe it or not, and from the very beginning, who's been the antagonist of Jesus? Not the poor, not the prostitutes, not the pagans, but the religious leadership. And in chapter 23, it comes to a head. Jesus here puts on the proverbial gloves. And again, the next several passages, they're hard. They're difficult on many levels. But we're committed to working through this gospel. We trust the Lord has a word for us this morning through these chapters. Last time, I mentioned that there's a danger that we don't worship the real Jesus. That was what was going on here. They had a reductionistic view of the Messiah, and so they dismissed Jesus. They had a domesticated view. And so today and next week, we're going to come across some of the sharpest Teaching that Jesus ever gave. In our last passage, Jesus did that little Bible study, you remember on Psalm 110, and they walked away and they didn't ask him any more questions. Well, now it's Jesus' turn to talk, and he's fired up. So much so that liberal theologians say Jesus didn't even say this. And all that Jesus says this week and next is consistent with what he just said, probably on the same page of your Bible in Matthew 22 about the Great commandment to love. It's not as, oh, Jesus got unloving here. No, actually, telling the truth sometimes is the most loving thing we can do, even when it has a serrated edge. If we don't think that stern rebuke and love go together, we're not following the Jesus of the Bible, and we have a distorted view of biblical love. If people call Jesus unloving, they either have the wrong Jesus or the wrong view of love. And Here in chapter 3, we have a, a large section of teaching, and it's really the second to last Of six collections of Jesus' teaching blocks in Matthew. So we're in Matthew 23, verse 1. Let's consider seven ways that the scribes and Pharisees get it wrong. First, the scribes and Pharisees talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. Then Jesus said to the crowds, And to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Scribes and Pharisees were the teachers, they were the trained experts on the law, and they wanted... They were Jewish leaders who wanted the Jewish people to be freed from Rome and they thought really rigorous obedience to the law and a whole bunch of commandments that they added, that was the way. And so they would be talking about the law and implications all the time. That's what they were about. And they sat on Moses' seat. they just, just meant they taught. That's what you would do in that day. You would teach and sit. You would sit while you taught. And they taught as one who had the authority derived from the Mosaic law. So Jesus says they teach. And when they teach the law, do what they say, but don't do what they do. You ever heard parents say that? Do what I say, not what I do. Doesn't work. Jesus is warning them here. Don't be like them. Do not do their works. Do not follow their example. And he gives a reason that word for. For, because they don't practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And Jesus opposed to that. He wants consistency between our head, our heart, and our hands. He wants wholehearted commitment. And that's what the Pharisees lacked. And that's really been the message from the beginning. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? What does he say there in 520? He says, Your righteousness speaking to his disciples, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And on first glance, we think, how in the world could we do that? Those are the holiest of the holiest. And externally they were. But Jesus is looking for more than external righteousness. And then at the end of that chapter, chapter 5, verse 48, he's speaking against his disciples. And he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. And again, we think, how could we ever? It's kind of an unfortunate translation. That same word, teleos, is translated in other parts of the New Testament as complete or mature or whole. And that's the idea. You need to be whole like your heavenly father is. The idea is not perfect like without any sin, of course not, but fully mature, wholeheartedly complete, having a unified heart for God, singleness of devotion, wholehearted dedication to God and all of life orientation toward God, desires and duties. It's what they did not do. Put simply, Jesus would say, I want you to walk the walk and talk the talk. This is the difference between the disciples and the hypocrites. He wants wholeness, completeness, maturity. Not just external righteousness, but heart righteousness. So he says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be like them. And so, friend, I just want to ask you, this is a really relevant question in Abilene, Texas. Is are you talking the talk and walking the walk? Or are you seeking to compartmentalize your life? You know, little compartments. I am here at Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. I've got my little compartment for Jesus, but I'm going to close that off when I go from here. then Monday, I've got my little compartments. Are you seeking to compartmentalize the Lordship of Christ? That can't be done. As Francis Schaeffer said, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so beware, friend, of being like the scribes and the Pharisees. Saying one thing, but living in an entirely different way. The Lord Jesus Christ is clearly opposed to that sort of life. They don't practice what they preach. Number two, the scribes and Pharisees, they don't care about the people under their authority. Look at verse 4. This is religious leadership. Verse 4, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Notice the time they take. Not only do they load them up, he says first they tie them up. They tie them up. It takes a little time. And then they go and they put them on someone else's shoulders, and it's a burden, and it's heavy to bear. They're burdening the people under them. You remember what Jesus says about his burden? Flip back to chapter 11. Same language being used. Jesus' invitation, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. you so hold on. These, these people are tired. You know what a yoke is, right? A yoke is an instrument of work. It's what helped you work. People who are tired of work don't need more work. Do they need a nap? They need a couch? No. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus and his commandments are a new way to live that gives us refreshment, not burden. His burden is not heavy like the scribes and Pharisees. Living for him is joy. His commands give life. Theirs take it away. And notice they don't even do it themselves. They tie it up that they don't even lift a finger. They don't care about people. And Jesus does. That's in many ways. That's what is fueling Jesus' righteous anger in this chapter: is that He cares for people. They don't. They burden them. Number three, the scribes and Pharisees cared about the glory of men, but not the glory of God. They act righteously only to be seen by others as righteous. And Jesus knows their motive and he condemns their motive. Their action seems good, but their motive is wicked. And again, there's nothing new in this chapter. He already said this back in chapter 6. Flip it back with me. Matthew 6, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware, be warned of practicing your righteousness before other people, In order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Look over at verse 16. It's the whole chapter. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. They do what they do in order to be seen. They want the glory. They want to be known as the holy ones. And so they're acting outwardly righteous so that they might be seen as outwardly righteous. They really don't have a heart for God. And how does he say they do? They make these broad phylacteries. You know what those are? We don't really use them today. Maybe you've been to Israel. Maybe you've seen pictures. But basically, they're these little Torah boxes. And so places in Deuteronomy and other places would command the Jews to have the the law on their mind and on their heart. And so they took that, I think, wrongly, literally, and would put little pieces of Scripture on their head. And then they would put little pieces of Scripture on their their arm to be close to their hearts. And I think the motive is fine, originally, but what they've done is they've made these big ones. I wish we had pictures to see this big old Pharisee just bogged down by this broad phylactery. Who can have the biggest Torah box on their head? Who can have the biggest box hanging off their arm? And not only that, the law commanded these, these little tassels on their robe, these white and blue fringes. And so they made it a competition. We want to have these super long ones just dragging behind me. Look at my tassels. Big old box. Everybody, look at me. In the first century, there were actually two schools, Hillel and Shammai, and Shammai made sure they outdid Hillel. Their tassels were longer. The motive, though, is that they want to be seen by others as holy and righteous and religious. It's easy to dismiss big fat Torah boxes, but what would be the equivalent of broad phylacteries today? I think an immediate principle here actually is that leaders, religious leaders, should not wear distinctive cler- clergy clothing. I mean, you won't ever see me up here in a robe or a collar for multiple reasons. This is one of them. But what else? Maybe your phylactery is a certain translation of the Bible. You don't really find King James only people anymore, but that used to be a big deal a generation ago or so. Maybe it's the authors you read. Maybe it's your name on a plaque or a pew. Today, maybe it's your forearm tat. Special holy points if it's in Greek or Hebrew. Maybe it's your bumper stickers. I've shared mine with you before. When I became a new Christian, I was a freshman in college, become a Christian, fairly, fairly you know, immoral lifestyle and, and pretty radically converted, and the first, one of the first things I did, I had this old 91 Explorer, and I went I the, I got it tatted up. I mean, everywhere. So on the front brow, big old massive words, bow now or bow later. I mean, this big. <laughs> bow now or bow later, you could see me coming. <laughs> On the back, though, on the back, I had, uh, you had the little license plate cover. Then I had the, the bumper sticker, Real Men Love Jesus. And then I had the little fish, you know, little Ichthus. I'm not done. And then I had the, the back of the windshields, big, big cross. I'm not joking. This big. I mean, it covered the whole back windshield, and it said, Eternally Secure. And so from every angle, I was just, a, I'm, a, I'm a driving track bomb. You just see me coming. At the time, one of my best friends—he's a rapper now, uh, Big Mike Corleone—he was like, "Bro, we can't take that to the club no more." <laughs> I'm go and preach the gospel. Now, Listen, I think my heart was pure there, though. I think—I don't think I was just trying to be self-righteous. But here's the challenge of Jesus: we got to weigh our heart. Having a Greek tattoo is not sinful, but what's your heart to look really holy? You got to know the heart. We all should be acting very righteously. we just got to know our heart. Why are we doing it? Jesus indicts the motive. Maybe it's your social media posts. Maybe you spend more time, you know, posing and getting the right angle on that psalm before more than you actually spend time in the psalm. Again, nothing wrong with posting scripture. I post scripture all the time. But what's the motive? What's the heart level? Look at verse 6, Matthew 23, verse 6. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. They like to be known. They like to be honored. They like to be privileged. They don't really care about being holy, but they they care about being seen as holy. They want to be first. In fact, that little word first is there a couple times. It's the word proto. They want the first seats. They want the first chairs. They like to be known and seen in the marketplace. But Jesus then turns and he addresses his disciples specifically in verse 8. He says, but you, you're not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Jesus contrasts the way of the Pharisees and the way of the disciples. Again, this is the same thing he did in chapter six, chapter six, verse three. They give to be seen, but you are to give in secret. Six seventeen. When they fast, they mess up their faces and they put the little cross of ashes and they post the selfies. But you are to wash your face so that no one will know except your father. Chapter 20, verse 20, the pagans that use their authority to rule over people, it shall not be so among you. We're to be a countercultural, a contrast society. We're to be different, even different than the religious leaders. He says, you're not to have the special titles. Rabbi meant my great one. There again, they were those trained and formally recognized as scribes. You're not to be called rabbis because you're all brothers, he says. This is why historically in Baptist churches, what would they call the pastor? Brother Larry, Brother Bruce. No one here calls me Brother Blake. If you do, don't take the R. Don't make it Brother Blake. Brother Blake. I'll take that one. <laughs> this is good biblical precedent, though. I'm just a brother. I'm just, the pastor is just a brother, a brother, just one of you. And he says, kind of ironically, he says, you shall call no man your father in light of the Roman Catholic Church and tradition. Why? Because you have one father. No instructors, you have one, the Messiah. See, again, he's getting at the heart of the scribes and Pharisees. They wanted the praise of people. They wanted the titles, and they wanted you to know their titles. They wanted to make sure you knew what letters came after their name. They want you to know that they are a master of divinity. Isn't that not an absurd title for a pastoral degree? (laughs) Three years, you have mastered divinity. Congratulations. Scribes and Pharisees, they would love the whole idea of a pope. They would love it, but they would then fight over it. They would like reverend, the reverend Dr. Bishop. And we can laugh, but we need to know there are people that are only in this thing, in any type of leadership, for their own glory. They want the praise of people. They want to be a deacon, not because they love people and want to serve the church. No, because they want to be known as a deacon. They want the title. They want to be an elder so they can stand before people. They want to be pastor so they can exercise authority. They want worldly recognition. They're just building a resume. They're in this thing for the social connections. You know, church can be good business in Abilene, Texas. And Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't have leaders or we shouldn't even honor religious leaders. First, Thess. five. Paul says, esteem leaders very highly. So we need leaders and we should esteem them. We need teachers. What Jesus is saying is at the end of the day, they must live for the glory of God, not themselves. Our job is to get out of the way. Christian leaders got to adopt the posture of John the Baptist. He must increase we must decrease. Fourth, the scribes and Pharisees wrongly define kingdom greatness. Look at verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be Exalted, Jesus has already hit this, too, multiple times. Flip back just a few chapters to chapter 18 as he's speaking to his disciples. This is a big deal for Jesus. He hit it multiple times. Jesus wants us to pursue greatness. He's not down on ambition. we just got to define the greatness correctly. So look at Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We'll flip over to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the pagans, they lord it over them, and they're great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The great ones are the servants. The last are first. The humble ones will be exalted. The way up is the way down. We can learn quite a bit about Jesus' view of church leadership from these verses, can't we? They're not to follow the example of the scribes and Pharisees. We are to preach and we're to practice what we preach. We don't make broad phylacteries, but rather we quietly pursue holiness. Faithful leaders could not care less about the title. They're about the people. They're about the work. They're about the glory of the Lord and they're servants. And servants exist to make the lives of others better not make their own life better. Those who would be in Christian leadership must determine which will it be, status or service. The way of Jesus is service. And then Jesus now turns his attention directly towards the scribes and Pharisees with seven woes. We're not going to cover them all this morning. We'll look at four. So fifth way they get it wrong, the scribes and Pharisees shut people out of the kingdom. Look at verse 13. A child of hell as yourselves. Strong words. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus laid out the Beatitudes, right? The blessings. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And here we have seven woes, which is the opposite of a Beatitude. It's a curse. Here we have the Sermon of Woes. Sermon on the Mount, how to live for a flourishing life. Here we have the Sermon of Woes. How not to live. And Jesus' tone is sharp. This isn't meek and mild Jesus. One commentator says this about this section. He says, It's one of the most intense rhetorical displays in the New Testament. Full of passionate scorn. It's a passage of condemnation, denunciation, disdainful censure. It's a diatribe, a frontal attack, a tirade, a rant. This is the rhetoric of the prophets. Today's church leaders would indict Jesus for breaking the 11th commandment. You know what that is? Thou shalt be nice. Jesus calls them hypocrites, two faced. The word literally, it's a word from the theater. It's actors who wore masks in a play, and their aim is is to be someone they're not in order to impress others. They're two faced performers. Sometimes unbelievers will say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. It's just filled with hypocrites. Friend, if you're here and you have a problem with hypocrites, you have a friend in Jesus. Because he does too. And he says, These Jewish leaders, they won't enter the kingdom. Tragically. And they keep people from the kingdom, they shut them out. Religious, Religious leadership is supposed to open up entrance to the kingdom, not close it out. And they're so zealous, they went out beyond the borders of Israel to proselytize, and they end up making people twice as much a child of hell as they are. Jesus is telling these Jewish leaders your D groups are producing sons of hell because you're a son of hell. Supposed to produce sons of heaven. Missionary zeal without divine truth is dangerous. And here, these missionaries are spreading the doctrine of demons. And Jesus says they'll be judged. Six, the scribes and Pharisees are blind guides. If you're a guide, it's helpful not to be blind. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Blind guides, blind fools. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, again, he'd already said you shouldn't be making any oaths. But here they are making all these fine distinctions between vows that are binding and vows that are not binding. And they get everything backwards. They value the gold in the temple over the temple itself. But the items in the sanctuary are only set apart because of the sanctuary. They don't know what they're doing. They're blind, and then they're seeking to guide others, only causing more confusion and more condemnation. And seventh, they major on the minors. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and had neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. And faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They get bogged down with the details. They don't major on the majors. They have a distorted view, a distorted attention toward the minutia. They tied their garden herbs. but don't do the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. And they were unjust. And they showed no mercy, and they were unfaithful. Really sounds like Micah 6.8 here, right? A good summary from the Old Testament. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You know, Jesus doesn't necessarily object to tithing your vegetable produce. What does he say? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You should tithe from your income and resources and be generous, but you should also keep the rest of the commands as well. They're off balance. And so, once again, Jesus uses satire. He uses the smallest animal, an unclean gnat, and the largest animal. And they get things so backwards that they strain the gnats and swallow the camel. You have it all backwards. You're blind, you're foolish. It's a hard message, isn't it? And in our day of religious pluralism, our day of inclusion, we need to hear the exclusive message of Jesus. People will often think that everything's relative. You know, if it's working for you, great. Do your thing. You do you. You know what? As long as you're sincere, as long as you're sincere, that's good. But we just need to hear Jesus begs to differ. These people were nothing if not sincere. And Jesus says they're sincerely wrong. These people are precise about doctrine, serious about the law, even zealous for evangelism. And Jesus says they're going to hell. Because all their sincerity and religious rigor, it's not focused on him. The message of Jesus is an exclusive message. Sincerity means nothing. Wasn't that Paul's story? Saul, now Paul. Paul. He was an A-team Pharisee. Galatians 1, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I. He was sincere. And what was our fighter verse this last week? Whatever gain, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count it all. This verse comes right after he listed several of his Pharisaic accomplishments. I count it all. Is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. How do I count all that religious sincerity? I count it as rubbish. It's about the closest word we have in the New Testament to a cuss word. Dung. He came to see all his sincerity as rubbish. You must have Christ. They rejected him. Religion is worthless without Jesus Christ. There is salvation found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so if you're not a Christian, I would just urge you, exhort you. The Lord commands you to turn to him. Trust in him. You can have sincerity in all sorts of levels. It will get you nowhere. You must turn to Christ and find forgiveness of sins in life. Turn from your sin. That's what we call repentance. And trust in Christ. If you have questions about that, nothing more we'd like to talk about. If you've done that, your first step of obedience is to go public in believer's baptism. If you are a Christian, don't be a Pharisee. Commit to him with your whole heart, head and hands. Live for his glory, not your own. Increase Christ and decrease self.